0: All right, guys, uh, welcome everybody to this week's my check discussion group call. Uh, I guess Keith had some things going on, so he's not going to be here with us this week. But this is, uh, Sunday. Uh, what are we looking at? Like the 20th year of December. Sunday, the first day of the week. Not the seventh, not the Sabbath, like I always say. And, um... So I was going to leave the mics open this evening for people to chit-chat and stuff like that. Um, There's a couple people last night that got a hold of me that wanted to come on this evening. And I'm not seeing them here yet. Um, But either way, the mics will be opened up if they show. Or uh, as they say nowadays, appear. (laughs) Uh, But anyway... It's all right. I've been flying solo on this for a few years anyway, so that's absolutely no big deal. gosh, um, there's so many things that could be covered. You know, I kind of titled uh, tonight's meeting, uh, Who Are You? And I think who we are is probably one of the biggest difficulties that is experienced nowadays. Um Everybody's born, they're they're automatically given a name, you know, a nationality, um, a religion is normally even thrown on them. And uh, even today, you know, people are now starting to complain about a gender is thrown on them. And they should have the right to decide that. I know there can be some psychological issues from time to time that very few people will will encounter that could cause a problem when it comes to gender, maybe. But uh, as a whole, yeah, that's not really something that really should be much of an issue. And I think a lot of times, especially getting into teenage years, you know, we, we hear about, you know, identity crisis. So, you know, they're a teenager. Oh, they're just going through an identity crisis kind of thing. They're trying to find themselves or whatever the case may be. And, you know, I would venture to guess that this is something new in the past, maybe 50 years or so. Because I don't think that through time and through the centuries, people really grew up having an identity crisis. They knew who they were. They knew where they were from. They knew where they were at. They were taught what their purpose is here. On life is, although I know that's a question that probably goes through everybody's mind, you know, at some point or another. And I think it goes through people's mind not just in the teenage years, but you know, later in life, Um, we'll often stop and sit back and go, "Wait a second, you know, am I really doing what I'm intended to be doing uh, here on this planet?" But I I think that, especially with um, the society or the realm that we're in now. Uh, which was rightfully referred to as the great experiment is that that was one of the first main lines of attack was identity and that's one of the things that really you know can cause a big confusion in people's mind i mean that's something that should be a strongholdage that's something that um you should be able to connect and hold on to and stand with in life uh, knowing that who and what you are, you know, and what your purpose is. But I think even back to the Statue of Liberty, you know, where, you know, these people were bringing up a new nation and they stated on it, you know, uh, bringing us, you're tired, you're hungry, you're poor, you're weary, whatever, you know what I mean? It, which that, that's, that's a good thing to go with and stuff. Myself, I think if you're starting up a new nation, I would say, bring me your wealthy and your (laughs) well-educated, you know, because I want to build a strong nation here. Uh, To me, what they were asking for was groups of people who would be easily controlled. That's just kind of one way of looking at it in my mind's eye. And that's one of the things, really, that's happened in America because prior to other countries... I mean, even though people from this country supposedly came here from England, which actually the Mayflower came here from the Dutch Netherlands, uh, people have been living there for about 15 years. That's where they had settled at. They're starting their families there. They were well settled there, but decided that they didn't want their kids growing up with the values, whether it was religion, whatever the case may be, that. They were being exposed to in society in the Dutch Netherlands. They wanted a fresh start, somewhere where there wasn't other influences around that you know, they could train up their children the way they believed. Um with the morals that they believed in and the standards that they believed in. And that's what they're really looking to do, even when they first went to the Dutch Netherlands. but even prior those people were used to belonging even in england originally they were used to belonging to tribes uh the family name meant a lot it meant a lot if you were say for instance like a Stuart, you know or whatever the family line is the the name meant a lot because it kind of showed who you were what you guys were about what you did very often Really, it came down also to commerce. Um, When you look at names, you know, like uh, Baker or Smith, so many of these names all relate directly to a role in commerce. That's what this family does. That's what this clan does. And in England, you know, the the clans stuck together very, very well. And that's one of the problems that I've even heard military generals talking about um, in the Middle East is that, you know, they're used to in wars, you know, always fighting against the guys in a certain uniform or something like that. It it was, you know, side A against side B. And they said that over there, you know, everything is not just a country or a nation because they don't have this national identity situation over there that America's been brought up with. America was brought up with a national identity instead of a tribe identity, instead of a family identity. And over there in the Middle East, it's it's a tribe identity. And sometimes even some of these tribes are warring against each other, you know. And so when they're fighting these people, they don't know which ones are friends and which ones are foe. It makes it very very difficult for them, you know. It's a kind of a weird game of whack-a-mole, I guess. <laughs> But I think that's one of the things looking back at the structure of everything with America is far of why it was referred to as great experiment. As we all know, really the root of government is, you know, governing the mind, controlling the mind. And that's what eventually was going on. That's not what originally was being done. Is originally when they came over here and I don't want to bore anybody with history, but to me, some of this history is stuff that isn't necessarily taught in school. Like most people, you know, around Thanksgiving time, I'll hear people having Thanksgiving-style conversations, and I'll even ask them, well, where did the pilgrims come from? Oh, they came from England. You know, it's like, the whole story really hasn't been told. And when those people came here, they formed a compact amongst each other. And even in international law, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's where unity is formed when men of like mind come together they join in unity. And that's what those guys did. And that document that they signed amongst the families was the Mayflower Compact. And that was good enough for them. That lasted for their society. It was good for what, well, you know, 160, 170 years until these other forces kind of crept in to. Uh, United States of America, which really wasn't even formed yet. At this time, these people were all living and operating under uh, land grants, land deeds uh, from the king, who really had prior claim to of this land. The Northwest Ordinance, uh, for one, Uh, that was part of a deal with uh, the king of France, where the king of France ceded the property to the U.S., and it's something that it really needs to be researched more. You know, I, I think that the people of the United States of America kind of get a bad rap uh, when it comes to the situation with the Indians because evidently, you know, France was already here. They had already laid claim to property. They already had forts up. Um, I lived right next to one of them in northern Michigan, Fort Michele Mackinac. That was originally a French fort. And across the water from that was Fort Mackinac, which was a British fort. So here we've already got two other countries that that were here. So I think there was um, some genocide that had been going on long before uh, the people came over on the Mayflower. Not to say that they didn't follow suit with that. But anyway... To get back to the topic, you know, these people were living under an agreement, I guess they called the Mayflower Compact, and that served them very well for a number of years, pushing 200 years until, like I said, other forces kind of crept in um, to the population. When these other forces kind of crept into the population, Uh, that's where. We see the Declaration of Independence coming about, we see the Articles of Confederation coming about, and um, then it all just gets really mired and murky. But so much of it was centered around a national pride, rather than a tribal or a family pride. And I think that's one of the things that has really hurt the American people, and We can even see, even more recently, information people are finding that the fight and the battle has really been against the family and destroying the family. Um, When you get into issues with CPS and child welfare, things like that, DCF, you know, the breaking up of the family in unnecessary situations. Um, Because that was the last little stronghold anybody might have had to any family pride or family strength. Anyway, I, I see you on here, Mike. How are you doing, bro? You might be muted on your end. I've got everybody muted on this side. I can double-check that just to make sure. I'm going to unmute everybody again. Just make sure everybody's unmuted. So if you had yourself muted out, you might have to go back and mute yourself. Yeah, you've got a live mic on this end.
1: Okay. How you doing, Brian?
0: Hey, what's going on, brother?
1: Hey, man. It's it's a rainy day in Tennessee instead of a rainy day in Georgia.
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's downpouring here right now, too.
1: Yep. Uh, what I, there was two things I was wanting to talk to you about. There's a lady that is starting to sell herbs online, and so she's... Doesn't want to have an LLC, you know, but she wants to have that limited liability because she'll be selling products that you can't sell in in all 48 states. And so, in case something goes sideways, you know, she won't have to worry about it. So, do you have any thoughts on on the best way to set up something like the church, a private church that will still have tax? Uh, status, you know, not being exempt and all that good stuff.
0: Right. Well, you're talking kind of two different subjects there. You're talking about church and tax status, and then you're talking about her selling her herbs and stuff like that, and you know, trying to um, take care of any liability issues um, with with her situation. And <clears throat> I apologize. To me, the best thing to do, and this is good for a lot of different avenues, and you know, especially if she's doing these online sales, um, this would about nothing more than to just a box that somebody checks off. Okay. And this yeah. is simpler, and it's even simpler than setting up an LLC. <clears throat> I don't myself recommend LLCs to people. And the reason why. I don't recommend an LLC, is because if there is ever any legal problem with an LLC, you cannot handle that yourself. You are required by law to hire an attorney. And LLCs are kind of weird because they're only recognized really in district courts. In the federal courts, they're, they're not even recognized. And so, to me, I don't really quite comprehend why they even exist, you know what I mean? But just at least for that purpose alone, as far as if there is any legal matter that ever came up and having to hire an attorney, that, to me, is a really good reason not to have an LLC. Um, but cool. yeah. It, it, but as far as, you know, if somebody is just selling products online or something like that, uh, or you're even doing stuff locally. I would say even if somebody wants to be like a handyman or whatever, um, what I would do is I would set up my private association because, I mean, you look around at how everything else is structured, even governmental wise, uh, they're not listed as LLCs or anything. They're, they're all private associations. You know what I mean? And so that's what I would do there, because also one of the things with the private association is that it's international law that government cannot interfere in an obligation of um, agreement among men, but which is an association. So you have a lot more freedom within an association than you would have under uh, something that's structured under the secretary of state that make sense?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see what you're saying on every bit of it because I think the reason the LLCs do exist is to keep where the attorneys can have a jurisdiction, you know, because everything out here is structured for the attorneys. You know, you know, yep. if, if you go somewhere and somebody don't know the answer, they go, let me pick up the phone. I'm required to call the attorney, see what he says. And what he always says is what keeps somebody in their jurisdiction, you know, like a code or something like that.
0: And especially being an LLC, LLCs, I'm sure that was structured by the attorneys, and that was structured right. to keep them and keep them in business. Because if there's ever a problem, you got to hire one of them.
1: <laughs> yes. See that the society that we live in uh, seems to evolve around a decision from a darn attorney. You know everything. Because if you go to government, if I go to the county and ask them a question they can't answer, they'll say, go see the county attorney or let me talk to him, you know? Because I've wanted to record some stuff in the county recorder, and they'd go, I've never seen that before. Let me see if it's okay to do that. Let me talk to the county recorder, you know? All kinds of things like that.
0: Uh, you it, know, you, it, should be able to file, you should be able to file the Humpty Dumpty story into a case if you want to. But if I anybody's know, you, seen,
1: good, you okay. But
0: if anybody, if you, so if anybody's ever case. seen, let's if anybody's ever seen that video that was covertly taken of that New York attorney talking, and he said, "We we rule the country, we run the world, we set up the laws to make them advantageous to ourselves."
1: That is so clear. What you just said, and if somebody gets arrested, another thing is they got the police where they will arrest you and charge you for anything, right? You know, and that way, it, even if you're falsely accused or something, then uh, the attorneys aren't held responsible for nothing. They, you know, they've got a free ticket to get out of jail on everything, it seems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when they nail somebody, they, they don't ever nail anybody for just one thing. They'll, they'll throw a basket full of charges on you, you know, maybe three, four, five, six charges. And it's like, oh, my God, you feel like you're overburdened. So what do you do in that situation? You know, people, everybody tells them, oh, you need to go get an attorney, man. You need to get an attorney. And the attorney gets all but one or two of those charges knocked off from them. And all of a sudden, they feel like, oh, the attorney really helped them out. When I mean, that, that was the plan all along. <laughs> yes, that's
1: exactly because you know, when, I'll tell you what. There's nothing but attorneys that seem to be advertised at the six o'clock local news in the evening. Okay, you know, it, there'll be ten different law firms be advertised, and they're saying something they can do, just like what you just said. Justify calling them, and then their savior of the day because you had. Six charges on you for something, and he got them all dropped but one. Isn't that amazing? Out, right. you know they they work together totally. Them in the court system, no matter what what it is, they're they're working for them. Like if you need bankruptcy attorney, boy, you know it it looks like they're always the savior. The the way that everything is structured out there, and you know if you get near the court. Around it, the courthouse or something. There's uh, reserved parking for the uh, esquire. They say it like that. Reserved parking for esquire. It, you know, like they they make them like rock stars, movie stars.
0: Yeah. Oh, and they've got they've got their own check-in lane when they go into the uh, courthouse. They don't have to go and go through the whole metal detector like everybody else does and stuff. You know, ah. and. and I found that you know the the, I'll just say the security in there is uh, somewhat cerebrally lacking, and I found that if I go in there wearing a three-piece suit, I can just walk through the freaking attorney's line and nobody says a word to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, the next thing I was going to ask you about is she's have has her own herbs her own uniqueness, and she's wanting to trademark it so somebody can't steal that name, you know, because she's going to make a certain name of an herb poxler, and she do not want somebody else to be able to hijack that name and use it to sell their herb. Is, is there an easy way of, of doing your own trademark?
0: Yeah, I would say for that, because what it really comes down to uh, when you look at like trademarks and copyrights and things, and if you look at any court cases, uh, one of the very first things they always go to is when was that name or that product first used and who used it. All right. So I would say, you know, you just do something as simple as, you know, there's online copyright sites, which it'll have everything dated and stuff, and you can go and you can put. The name of your product there and the purpose of it, and in the description box, you can tell everything about it and stuff like that, you know, so that it's proprietary to you. Um, And right there, you'll have evidence of when it was first created, you know, and when it was first starting to be used. And somebody could even go as far as to even go to the business section of the newspaper and just put a little two line notice in there saying that, you know, upon this date, whatever, um, I am marketing product called this, this, and this, you know. And add in any possible names that you might relate to that product as far as additional products, just in case. You know what I mean? That way, that way yeah. you're covering it all at one time.
1: Okay, now that what you could also do, in addition to what you just said, is mail yourself that information in an envelope, and it gets dated on it, and you hang on to that, and so if somebody wants to say a, a year or two from now that they have, that they named that product for you do, you've got a date right there that you can show it to the judge, and Here's the thing I heard, that that if you've got a letter mailed like that, and that they will not open the letter for nothing. You know, like if you got it dated like that, say, five years ago, that I have to open it. The judge will not open anything like that that's sealed through the mail, that somehow it gets him in trouble if he was to break the seal on anything. Have you ever heard that?
0: Yeah, they're not necessarily really allowed to open mail. I mean, and that comes down to situations of search and seizure as well. And that's why I recommend to people. um, Well, I, I, I know a few guys that are involved in things that aren't illegal, but they deal with large amounts of cash. And they've asked me, they're like, you know, Uh, we see people stories about people getting pulled over and they got 10, 15, 20 grand on them and the cops confiscate that money and they get it back, but they have to fight in court for a year or two in order to get it back. And so I recommend to them, I'm like, you know what? Get yourself a manila folder or, you know, big envelope and date it, get it stamped and just keep one or two of those available That way, whenever you're in one of those transactions and you have to travel, you go and stick that money in there and you seal it up.
1: Man, that is the ultimate way to do it because they can't open your mail either. Same way. Have it all ready like you're getting ready to drop it off at the post office box. It's just, yeah, that vanilla envelope with all that in it and get one that's cushiony so they can't tell what's the contents in it. And so... It, it would it, that would work perfect, wouldn't
0: it, to hide your money? Exactly, exactly. Now, as far as mailing something to yourself, and I, I see people talk about that all the time, and I really don't like that idea for a couple reasons. Um, one is that even if a judge or an attorney, you know, was to go and open that up to see the contents in there. Um, you could have a problem down the road, you know, if there is a follow-up case to that where they're like, okay, well, you've got envelope, it's open. You're saying this is what was in here. Um, I mean, that, then you're looking at having to go and, you know, get this judge or whoever else summoned to testify that, oh, I'm the one that opened it, da-da-da. And, and that that's just kind of a pain in the butt. And it, in the same way as when people are doing, like, administrative process, and they're mailing stuff to somebody. Um, I heard um, a cop talk about this one time, and he laughed. And he says, oh, yeah, we've gotten envelopes, you know, like that before that um, supposedly had notarized information inside of it. He said, "Uh, as far as I know, that envelope was empty. There was nothing in there. And that's why I recommend in that situation that you use the AP process, you use the uh, notarial process, administrative process, where you go to a notary, they go, they witness you sign the document or whatever, and then they go and they sign it and stamp it, but they they take care of the mailing. And whoever they send it to or whatever, the return of it has to come back to them And they log it in their book that, yeah, they receive the correspondence back because then you're using an officer of the secretary of state, which is your best witness ever. You know what I mean? So to me, that would be the best way of of verifying information that's dated.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That that would be the ultimate what you just said. So couldn't you on this trademark fill out some of that paperwork? and go to the notary, and she confirms that you filled that out, the name of your herbs, and uh, she could mail that to me or something, and then i just leave it in that sealed envelope, wouldn't
0: I? Yeah, and, and I would say it wouldn't even need to be mailed to you. Uh, if, if you've got a document that's listing and even has photos of what you're doing, <clears throat> and you sign it, and she witnesses it, now, guaranteed. Now, the only thing a notary is notarizing is your signature. They are verifying it was you that signed the document. They're not validating the information within the document. And it's the same okay. thing like with the, with the authentication process. It's the same. or a postial, That's the same exact thing. But, you know, at least you have the original document. You use the original document. And you've got your wedding signature on it with the notary stamp on it. And that, that's as good as anything. That's as good as gold.
1: Yeah, because if there's a date on that document and the notary watches me sign it, she logs that into her logbook, such and such a date and such and such a person. So it, it, there's a record right there. So that's got to, you know, she can bring it into court right there.
0: Now, there's some people that are going to be like, they don't want to use a notary. Oh, that's a government official, da, da, da. Well, uh, if you only get that extreme on it, there's two other things you can do. One would be to get three witnesses to sign it and date it, you know, and let's put their address on there as to, you know, who they are, verification of who the witnesses are. Or, if you want to do the mailing thing, or it doesn't even want really need to be mailed, you can go to the post office, and the clerk at the post office will stamp your document as well.
1: Right. I've, Which, what, I've what, done that, what you just said. Like, I have to mail stuff to the VA, and, and they'll pretend they didn't get it. So, what we do is go there, and they date stamp it, and location stamp it at at the post office and then I have to make a copy of it there on the spot and I keep the original and I send the copy to the VA, the Veterans Administration and uh, that is confirmation right there, proof that it was mailed. You know? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely and I'll tell you what, every post office I've been to even the little private post offices that are running inside like a Hallmark card store or something like that all of them have a copy machine right there don't people think there's a reason why they've got a copy machine in every single post office you know because once they go and they stamp that you can go and make a copy of it send off the copy and keep the original for your records right and and that's what
1: everyone has to do is that very thing you know especially with these With these agencies, like I'm talking about Social Security or the VA or something like that, because they get so much mail, they can actually get something you send them, and they could accidentally really and really lose it, you know, get it mixed up with something, because they get tons of mail. So you've got to have that assurance with the backup.
0: Yeah, it's called CYA, cover your ass. Yeah,
1: (laughs) with these agencies, you better do it. And so that's what we're saying with this is – uh, have have all this, and here's another thing, uh, is to make some copies of this. What we do, you know, making this trademark in a sense, and have and leave some copies at a friend's house. And that yep. way, if you say your house burnt down, I'm just saying, you know, or or some the document got lost, you'd have it at a friend's house as a backup. And it, you know, it's no cost to make copies of this and store it in a friend's house.
0: Oh, but I mean, yeah, eh, but their house can burn on too. I mean, but I mean, I've, I've got a, uh, fireproof box that, that I use. And. Okay.
1: Well, you know, I was talking to the lady sure. of a week about that very thing and I have got one and she was saying that they make them, I guess it's like they're double lined so that the, the paper inside would never burn. So there's certain quality of a. Of these boxes that you have to get, storage boxes,
0: right? Right. Yeah. And you know, I've I've bought them at stores like Big Lots. I don't know if people are familiar with that store, but I mean, it's kind of a knockoff store. But I've I've bought them in there for 15, 20 bucks. And yeah, yeah they're I mean, very they're really thick walled boxes. And in fact, one of them, I always have one that I bolt into the trunk of my car. Okay. And it stays locked. Okay.
1: I'm going to be on the lookout since it's after Christmas. They'll have sales on something like that. And so I'll get me a strong box that is that good, kind of like a safe, you know. And I'll check out big lots because they have plenty of those around here and everywhere and get me a couple of them for storage yep. of, of important documents.
0: Sometimes they have them, but, I mean, you you can always get it at a Target or whatever, you know. Yeah. Right.
1: You know, we used to have Sears and Roebuck. Last year at this time, Sears and Roebuck went out of business here in Tennessee or in certain areas, and they had some things 50% off, like their tools. Yep. And and so you could get some really good bargains in. It seems a shame that Sears and Roebuck had, you know, a company that – it's been around forever, had to go out of business because of poor
0: management, you know? Well, I think there's probably more to it. I mean, and they, they merged with Kmart, and the Kmart locations have all pretty much shut down as well. Um,
1: yeah, but it seems like it was a plan to shut them down, because their prices stink, and, and the stuff that they had, people just wouldn't buy it. So they, it's like they didn't adjust... To having what people wanted to buy so how,
0: well, how can fail? sell? well here's the thing when we see stuff like this going on and i wrote a blog a couple days ago kind of talking about i kind of put one mention about this in there <clears throat> but when we see things like this going on we have to sit back and look was there a reason for it or what's going on let's look long term what's happening and the one thing i mentioned was you know a couple of years prior to 9-11, um, a lot of the big airports, especially the international airports, all started going and adding in more restaurants, more lounge space, more stores where you could shop at in there. It was almost like somebody behind the scenes knew that very shortly people were going to be spending a lot more time at the airport than they did before. <laughs> I know
1: it, there is a plan like it. They know how things are, are going to be
0: going, don't they? And sure enough, after nine 11, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you got to get to the airport three hours ahead of time, you know, and go through like a double check in and all this stuff. And so now, and I know for a fact that prior to that time, that after you went through your final check in to get on the plane, the only thing you did was get on the plane now in between that space and the plane is a bunch more little stores where you can buy a bottle of water for five bucks that you can't take on the plane, <laughs> you know, uh, smoking rooms, all that kind of stuff that never existed before. It was uh, like, wait a second. The people at the top knew this was coming several years before it even occurred.
1: Yes, I agree. Now, here's another thing. I listen to a lot of the car shows, and they're talking about that these different companies. They have products that they're selling they're not even making a profit off of. So like Chrysler, for example, they basically don't have anything that they're making a profit off of. So they're going to just wind it down maybe in the next couple of years, and it, it won't be around anymore. Chrysler Motors, we're talking about, you know, a big, gigantic thing. It's not making any profit. What it owns, it owns Jeep and Ram trucks, and there's the only place that they're making a profit. And then they own Dodge, and the muscle cars are selling right at this moment, but they think that they're not going to sell much longer. So the whole Chrysler thing, I think this is a plan, because they can produce things that sell, it's just that they don't want to. They're wanting to kind of wind Chrysler down that nameplate and maybe use it somewhere else someday, kind of like Oldsmobile. You know, that car company. They just phased it out. You know. Well, either
0: it's, either that or they're maybe um, at the corporate level being muscled out of the business. Uh, Because, you know, you go back to the bailouts of the automakers and Ford accepted a bailout and which gave a bunch of stocks to U.S. Inc. Well, when U.S. Inc. came or they went to U.S. Inc. like a year and a half or two later and said, "Okay, we want to buy those stocks back and stuff like that and pay off, you know, that bailout. Um, U.S. Inc. said, no, no, that's okay. We're just going to stay where we're at. And what? And then what did we see happen? All of a sudden, instead of seeing uh, like Ford Crown Victorias on the road as police interceptors, now you're starting to see GM cars out there with police interceptor or whatever on it, <clears throat> and they're, dri- they're driving GM vehicles. That's
1: right. See, things—it's like a shuffle of the cards, isn't it? You know. See, it was Chrysler's. And then you've seen Fords everywhere, and now it's Chevys everywhere that's the police cop cars now. And and so either either one, things go through a phase, or things just do a shuffle. And that way it doesn't look like things are so regulated and controlled. I don't know what the answer is, but that sure is funny that these American car manufacturers that that used to make all the profit and, and sell cars worldwide and everything are not making a profit. And these electric cars, they're really pushing these electric cars like crazy. I mean like crazy, okay? They, all these companies that are, are producing, getting ready to produce electric cars, if they're not, they're saying they're not even gonna make a profit for the next 10 years with them. <clears throat> That's the, how strong the switch is to go to electric cars that they're just going to produce them and and make them inexpensive enough for people to own, and they're not the companies aren't even going to make a profit. They're predicting for the next ten years. That's how fast they want these electric cars out here. And I believe there's an alternative motive for why the governments are wanting all these electric cars. I just don't know what it is yet. But right now, it's they don't you don't have much distance. You know, even if you have the world's best battery, it's a thousand miles. So somebody can't get in the car and
0: go from the East coast to the West coast. You know, you're really limited
1: with it. I wonder if
0: you're you're not, you're not guaranteed that there's a place to recharge readily available when the time to recharge comes it to me, the whole electric car thing is a facade. Uh, that is kind of the way of saying, Hey, we've all got to take care of the planet. This is all a serious situation and stuff like that. And even with the electric cars, though. with the price of them and you look at two facets of it one you would have to own that electric car for 15 years for it to have paid for itself for what you paid versus putting gasoline in it it take 15 years to pay that off and then the second problem with it also is is it really good for the planet because that energy that is produced to put in those batteries that energy has to be made somewhere and that's being made at those same coal-burning plants or whatever. You know what I mean? So you're still getting the pollution. You're, you're not getting a zero footprint. Okay, let me throw a
1: third part in there. You remember the, the first electric cars, you know, the Toyota Prius, Right. Okay, there was people that owned those that, that had cancer as a result of that. Of driving that, so when you're around it's all of that le- electronics, I think they've shielded a lot better now. But to, to start with, lots of people that were driving those cars were, you know, coming down with cancer. So they know that. I wonder if that is is another reason that they might want everybody in electric cars, just for that reason, to increase their odds of getting cancer. Uh, and they don't really quite know it. Maybe it's a different way of messing up somebody's body or, or limiting their, their life expectancy that you can't measure. Because there sure is this gigantic push to do this electric car stuff.
0: Well, you know, you know, and Joseph and I were talking prior to starting the recording that everything they do is for multiple reasons. It's not ever singular based. But, you know, when you're looking at a situation, for instance, with electric cars... It it kind of dovetails into the situation, like, say, with school shootings and things like that, and where, you know, one of the answers was, oh, we've got to put all these um, things in schools, all these devices in schools, you know, so, you know, uh, people have to, you know, walk through before they walk in, you know, then you stop and look at, okay, who owned those devices? Who was the investors in those companies? Oh, the Attorney General at the time, when that big push started, he was one of the big investors in those companies. And so then you look at, you know, the alternative to the to the gas car would be the electric car. Okay, well, maybe we should look into who is invested in these companies that will be supplying this battery power. You know, follow I, the money. Yes. It's always, always about follow the money. Yes.
1: Okay, now then, here's an additional. Another thing that they're working on like crazy and spending money, and there's never going to be any recoupment of this, is these cars that will drive their self. You know, in order for that to occur, they had to have the 5G for the cell phone towers. And so that was the reason why they had to go to the 5G according to them, okay? And so that's why they have de- are out here developing all of that. So that, you know, once again, the, the alternative right there, why did they have to have 5G? Did they really have to have 5G to run these cars on, you know? Or is it they setting these cars up to make 5G come on the spot when it's, that's the real reason is the uh, those things can put out so much stuff that that i there's no telling what all they can do i, I heard that they really affect people bad that's in an area where the 5g towers are you know mentally oh, and physically. Yeah.
0: yeah absolutely good I, evening I've heard... guys hey how you doing uh, i just wanted to uh, connect on that one though um th- I've heard several interviews of people who worked in the companies developing these things like 5G and stuff. And some of the stories they tell are horrific. I mean, they all had to wear, for instance, like a badge that when they came, when they left work every day, that badge had to get turned in and they checked the badge to see how much radiation was absorbed. And then they were talking about how sick everybody was getting and things like that. And I think as far as the vehicles go, the ultimate goal is to strongly limit travel and to eliminate vehicles as much as possible because it's supposed to be good for the environment and stuff, you know. but also it's going to make it financially unfeasible um, to be used, and it's really going to cut down on traffic and, and put people back on buses, riding bicycles, things like that. I think they're trying to get everybody. Same thing with the stores closing. They're trying to get everybody to stay at home, shop on their computer, and not leave the house. Try and get everybody to work at home. That kind of thing. Uh, we had somebody Whoa, else trying to bounce. We yeah. had somebody else trying to bounce in here.
2: Oh, I was just going to chime in. Uh, my name's Tom. I'm here in Oregon. I've just been listening along, and uh, I have a background in IT, and so uh, I've kind of been down the, the tunnel uh, in a first hand fashion on some of these subjects that you're talking about and uh, i'd like to bring up the subject of just gentrification um using batteries and over engineering the technology that goes into a car or into a flying device or a tractor or a piece of you know agricultural equipment it simply gentrifies the whole process line that comes after that product is purchased and owned by somebody privately. And so when that gentrification occurs, you limit the adaptability of the general populace to be able to either repair it or modify it or hybridize it so that it can be used for uh, a different application or a slightly modified application. And so when you look at companies like John Deere, case international caterpillar they're all doing the same thing that tesla is doing which is over engineering the technology that goes into these uh, pieces of machinery so that the average farmer is completely gentrified out of the process of repair and you need a highly highly trained technician in order to diagnose things work with the computer languages and so when that gentleman brought up the subject of 5g 5G is completely irrelevant to self-driving automobiles. The whole point of self-driving is that they're completely <coughs> autonomous. They don't need something to connect up to in order to be intelligent or capable. And so, you know, your your thought process is, is all admirable. It's not really, you know, going down the right path with it. Uh, what Brian said about 5G is, is uh, you know, highly accurate. We're looking at the weaponization of our of our. Air in our, you know, radio frequency bandwidths, and so, um, you know, whether the Prius actually gave people cancer or not. If that were the case, there would be a lot, a lot of people out there with specific types of cancer. There's there's millions of Priuses on the road. So, I mean, just think about what you're saying, you know, do some research before you say them. I mean, I understand how uh, suspicions can be aroused when you read things and things like that. But this new statistical analysis and, you know, Brian said it best, it's it's a cui bono. Where does the money end up flowing and with regards to all of this over engineering well it's flowing into these corporations that are going to be that that post purchase process of repair modifying hybridizing taking a base technology and then you know you can take a automated car and turn it into an automated aerial device right so it's just a platform for which you can adapt if you have the keys to the kingdom and the whole point of overengineering is that you limit who actually has the keys to that kingdom. Same thing happened in computers. Um, you know, around the time that Michael Dell started, you know, using only Intel chipsets in his uh, computers. Before that, he used both both the big companies, AMD and Intel. And so everybody loved the competition and the ability to toy and tinker with your computers after you purchased it. Nowadays, only, only, only computer gaming rigs uh, are really able to be uh, tinkered with after the purchase. Everything else has been over-gentrified. So I appreciate it. I just wanted to chime in on that.
1: Yeah, Tom. Yeah, uh, You said a lot of things. It was really good there. And they do overbuild all this stuff purposely so that the little guy can't work on it or something. you got to go to an expert. On everything well then that limits who can actually own that product it is having to pay for having it repaired because everything breaks and everything has to be serviced
0: so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think I think a lot of things that they do also you know to ensure their income uh, as far as getting things fixed and stuff is just so ridiculous I mean with uh, phones for instance You know, um, you can't, for instance, you know, with your iPhone or whatever, you can't open it up and do this or have somebody else work on it or what, you know, you're going to avoid the warranty on it and because they've got a little strip on there that picks up humidity or whatever, and so if that phone gets unsealed and opened up, then it's going to show whoever at, you know, Apple that that thing's been opened up and monkeyed with, whereas... If you live down here, like in Florida or areas that are extremely humid, it's so humid that those strips automatically get triggered anyway, and and void the uh, warranty on you. And yeah, so you know, it's just more of a way of ensuring their own jobs.
1: You know, that is what they're, they're doing is ensuring their own jobs on all this and then overcomplicating it on on all areas,
0: isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you even just look at basic areas. I mean, I, I know of numerous areas in the U.S. that I've heard about. There's once right across the bridge from me where you cannot work on your own vehicle in your own driveway. It's against the law.
1: Right, right. And, of course, you know that if your car is tore up and it sits there so many weeks or something that they'll put a fine on it. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah you
1: know, like, like say it's sitting there. Even in your driveway, I think, if, if it can stay so long and it is not running, because what they do is they look at the tag. If the tag's not active, and here in Chattanooga you have to go through and, and have it checked for, uh, emissions. Okay. So you have to drive it down there and, and get it checked on emissions and it has to pass that. Okay. If it don't have those stickers on it, they're driving by all the time and checking to see if these cars have those stickers on it. So if it's sitting there and it, and, and it's been sitting there say a year and it don't have that sticker, then that's when they're going to find you say $250 or something like that. I think's what it is that, uh, and it's, like maybe a month, two hundred fifty dollars a month till you get that car either fixed or moved out of that premises. You can't have it on your lot, and and especially one that I know of is called East Ridge. It's outside Chattanooga. It's touching Chattanooga, but that's the way it goes there. Because I know a lady that had a car there and and needed a little bit of work. So uh, they want these cars to be able to run, and if they don't, they're considered junkers. You know, get them out
0: of here. Yeah, exactly. And, well, and that kind of reminds me back to when uh, Obama had done the um, cash for clunkers deal.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: yeah. And boy, they, they, all, they... All that deal went over cars. to
1: China. Okay, I didn't know where they went, but they were saying that there was a lot of... A big hole was created... For used cars, they weren't nowhere near the used cars, so they must have sold a
0: lot of that. Uh, you know, turned them in, and a lot of them went somewhere. Or you know, the steel, yeah, you know, the steel got used for something else. The metals got used for something else. Um, I, I like focusing mostly, though, rather on problems, on solutions, or whatever. Uh, and uh, Tom, you're still with us.
2: I am. Go ahead.
0: All right. Uh, you said uh, that your background was in IT, correct? Yes, sir. All right. Well, one of the things I've really been looking into the past few months a lot and researching a lot, which it's kind of boring to research, but to me it's necessary, isn't IT, but it's IP, intellectual property. Um, what kind of knowledge do you have on intellectual property?
2: Well, um, my career kind of um, cross-segmented intellectual property when I was just kind of a lowly entry-level position guy where I was doing more or less uh, application support and a lot of end-user support, and they would start uh, you know, giving me added uh, tasks because I was just doing my work so fast, I'd kind of just be done with everything and, and waiting for the next thing. And one of the things they would pile on me is Sarbanese Oxley testing. And uh, if you ever look up that company, that's one of the one of the deeper rabbit holes you can go down. Uh, there's a Sarbanese Oxley Act that kicked off this whole uh, trajectory of making sure that corporations use software in a licensed capacity and to stay within the contracts that are uh, agreed to within the, the software licensing. And so the Sarbanese-Oxley uh, system kind of uh, launched this whole new area of software police into the world. And um, they privatized it right away, of course. And what they would do is they would come around to your corporation on behalf of Microsoft or Lucent or whoever happened to be the company and uh do an audit and you didn't have to do anything wrong to get audited you didn't you just had to simply exist with with these software licenses and so it was terribly uh repetitive terribly uh horrible was kind of like working for the irs where you're literally just checking things off and double backing on things and making sure that paperwork uh kind of has a circular path and so i learned about intellectual property through Understanding how Sarbanese Oxley treats these <coughs> software licensing agreements and treats people in corporations that abridge them, abridge the contracts. And um, that led me, you know, after I left the, the IT world and started working in just general startups, I thought I wanted to go down the cryptocurrency blockchain. Uh, path. But instead, I started working with uh, the medical cannabis industry out here in Oregon, which then turned into the legal scene and so on and so forth. And the cannabis proprietary system is extremely, extremely explosive and lucrative, obviously. And that really forced me to understand the complexity of trying to Put up a proprietary lien, say a trademark or a copyright, on to something that is made by nature, or trying to trademark the name applied to a particular cultivar that has not been stabilized. There's like this this path that you go through genetic process to stabilize the cultivar, and so there's all these crazy um complexities and challenges within that world of intellectual property that you generally don't see in the digital world but then again the digital world has complexities and challenges that that other venues do not and so um it's been a very like you say it's been very uh brain opening and eye opening but it's, it's deathly boring, and it's it's probably some of the most complex readings that I've ever done in my life. Uh, you know, after reading Law of Nations and, you know, some of these books that really challenge your vocabulary and your general capacity to understand abstract theory, that intellectual property world is is really a brain buster. So uh, hopefully I add <laughs> something to your question there. But Well, it's
0: yeah, I'll get... I'll get deeper into it. I'll get deeper into it. But yeah, what, yeah, you know, after you sit and read the law of nations for a few hours and go and try and have a conversation with somebody, you feel like you're talking to a two-year-old, you
2: know? <laughs> it puts you outside of the box a little bit. And that's, that's largely the way people who go pretty far down the, um, IP world with law and obviously the IT world with, uh, uh, information protocol, the IP protocol, and infosec, which is information security, um, you kind of feel like you're uh, in a different realm of understanding as far as humans, because there's just not a lot of people who take the time to build their awareness of it, because it is very, very abstract. It's like mathematics in a in a major way, and I've had trouble with it because I've never had a mathematical brain. It, 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 I struggle deeply to understand. Uh, some of these abstract concepts. So uh, intellectual property has been very difficult for me to uh, really branch my understanding into. And like that gentleman asked, you know, what do I do when I want to create, say, a church that also has trademarks? Well, guess what? You know, if you're going to create a copyright or a trademark, you're essentially saying that somewhere down the road, you're willing to defend your jurisdiction you know and and that generally will uh, require you to have a legal representation unless you're literally gonna go pro se to court in a in a defense of your of your symbol trademark or or uh, branding or or uh, what they call that uh, uh, actual name of your company and so uh, It's a hard question to answer. You did a great job, Brian, I feel, because there's just a lot of people who want to stay in commerce with their trademark, but they don't want to be an actual commercial entity. And so it's a bizarre bridge to try to gap because you're starting out as a nothing trying to protect the something. And so there's kind of a... uh, a crystallization that has to occur there. And generally, lawyers are there to hold your hand through defending that crystallized form of your idea. So,
0: All right. And to probably kind of try to make sure you stay within their realm. But, you know, to uh, get into why I brought up um, the situation with IP, intellectual property, <coughs> is that I, I, I'm seeing that this is the direction the world is heading in And the common man or woman doesn't realize it and that what's being traded. And I really would call this trafficking in persons and it's trafficking in your legal person and your legal person's information, your legal person's property. That legal person that was created is prop should be property of yours. Um, you should take the steps to go and retrieve it back. That way it's not administrated by them. And when I hear, and I, I brought the story up, I think before, of an expat um, who was living over in China. And there was it was late at night, nobody on the sidewalks or anything, so he jaywalked. Before he hit the sidewalk on the other side of the street, he got a a ping, a notification on his phone that let him know that the fine for jaywalking had already been taken out of his bank account. And this is what is heading towards America. It started over there. There's other countries that are experimenting around with it in South America, but it is heading here. And it's been used here already in a lighter way um, as far as... um, You know, what your value is commercially, you know, and what your credit score is. The credit score is just the start of that. And I see that that's the direction that things are heading in. And I I had a situation with LexisNexis because I found that they are the number one traders or sellers of your intellectual property. And when I say intellectual property, I'm talking about what deals with the legal personality, with that artificial entity that they created for you. That's why uh, tonight I, I named this call, you know, who are you? Because most people don't realize that they're actually operating technically as a representative or an agent for this legal entity that was created by the state. Because we know that like entities can only communicate or deal with other like entities. So they had to create a similar entity to their corporate structure to deal with you. And that's what they did. And that's the direction that things are going to be heading to uh, with the U.S. And I think one of the very first signs of it is the Real ID Act, which I believe most states are already in compliance with. But that's just step one. A lot of people think, oh, so this is something major. No, this is only a baby step uh, towards total takeover and restriction. Uh, like in China, it's going to restrict your flights. It might restrict what you even pay for a vehicle. Uh, there's tons of restrictions that, you know, what they call your um, character score or whatever is going to play on what those people can do and that's heading here and so what i really want to do is get together some people who have some comprehension of intellectual property and things like that to put a roadblock you know so people can claim their right to their intellectual property without it being sold or traded on the market in florida Um, If you go into the codes and things for the driver's license, it's supposed to be illegal for any of your information to get transferred to anybody else. Um, I was sitting with a friend of mine who runs insurance company, and we were talking about this, and we had been talking to somebody else several days uh, later, and this guy was saying, oh, yeah, he says, "Um, I got in an accident He said, I was pulling a trailer, the roads were wet, went off into the ditch, he said, but, you know, fortunately, it didn't involve another vehicle, so it won't hurt my insurance. And I looked over at my buddy that has an insurance company, and I just kind of chuckled. And the guy was like, what, what are you talking about? And my friend who owns the insurance company says, yeah, it will affect your insurance. He says, what are you talking about? He says, well, did the police come? He said, Oh, yeah, police came. They wrote a report. And he said, Okay, yeah, it's going to go against you. It's going to be struck as a negative. Even though there is no ticket written or anything like that, LexisNexis gets a hold of all the information from the police and from the courts. And they forward that to various companies like insurance companies. And so it's going to come back to bite you. And so that it's already set up uh, this whole Profiling for your intellectual property is already set up in the U.S. It's just a matter of how strong it gets used against us.
1: Yeah, a, a oh, yeah. local news here. Brian mentioned what you're just saying that the DMV takes that information, uh, uh, like what we're saying, gathering different information. If you had that wreck in on the side of the road, but it didn't involve no one else, but you at least had that, they sell that information. And they was talking about how many millions the Department of Transportation here in Tennessee makes per year. I think it was saying $400 million is how much they make.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How can they make that much money selling information? So that that shows if they're making money, then they're going to continue doing it to, to a lot larger extent. Yeah. Brian, Absolutely. i got a quick question for
0: you. What's that?
2: <clears throat> well, I got a quick question for you. Uh, we're kind of on the subject of this. You were mentioning, um, you know, taking property and uh, either proprietizing, trademarking, copywriting it. Uh, but just more on a basic level, um, you know, you kind of have tiers of, of uh, property, you know, in terms of, of what it's worth, and you know, your lower tiers would be your heirlooms and jewelry and things like that. And you get up into the car and the house and things like that that are top tier, um, you know, capital bearing uh, pieces of property. Have you heard of Hey, any what do we got? Families, yeah, you sound uh, good. Have Have you heard of any families uh, <laughs> that are in different states? just Being had to reboot April it then two. or what? Guys, we're not, you got to mute wow. yourself. Out. Oh, that's good.
1: good to know. If it happens again, just reboot, see what happens. So, uh, I'll, take, well, I'll take care uh, of that. Please just came online didn't know, I guess, something.
2: I just get distracted. I'm hearing impaired, so I get distracted. Yeah. Um, have you heard of any families that are maybe not residing in all the same state um, taking processes to uh, keep their property, like their cars and their houses, the big ticket items out of probate and out of that commercial uh, system, once someone passes away in the whole line of, of, you know, ownership needs to be executed? Have you heard of anything like that? That's, you know, not really a church of, of you know, obviously, there there's an actual church building and everything. It's just people in their homes.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, you know, some people are doing some things with trust. Um, there was actually a bill and I can't think of the number of it right now. Um, gosh, I heard about this a long time ago. There is a bill that Lady Bird Johnson sponsored that had to do with this. Uh, like, you know, if, if somebody had passed away and what would happen to the home and, So, yeah, it's strongly recommended that uh, like in that situation, like a will be set up or something like that, because otherwise that all that property falls directly into the lap of the state. And so then now you're going and you're fighting through probate with the state.
2: And probate is a real bad uh, mess. I, I really, that was the one time in my life that I had to literally deal with the lawyer directly is to understand probate more effectively and what my uh, you know personal ability to work within that was. And from what I could see, anything that you can do in your family and with your property to remain outside of that system is is to your benefit and the best the thing that i saw that they use to ensnare people is that they can uh, put a, uh, I don't know if it would be called a lien necessarily, but they put a lien on a property if its taxes are not all up to snuff or if there's other zoning or, you know, like the other gentleman was talking about with, like, if you got junker cars laying all around the property or something, they can literally start uh, acting as though they can zone you out of the delineation of your uh, line of ownership and thing, delay all that from, you know, Proceeding on in, in a in a death in, a, in executing someone's will or something like that. So it's really a messy thing. So I was just wondering if you had heard. I've heard things about trusts, and it seems like it's more popular the farther you go west. I mean, Texas is probably a, a checkerboard of things like these things happening, but it seems like the further you go west, the more you hear about people trying to do creative things to. Exclude the prop the property that they own from these commercial processes that occur. So I just thought I'd ask about that
1: Brian will have a good answer for you Tom on that. He must must be pushing some buttons somewhere to mute some people. It seems like talks you boot him
2: off at least one time every every show, so maybe he got bumped off or we just got to uh, wait for him to dial back in.
1: Right. One of the problems we're having it, that people don't realize is we don't actually fully own our cars. That when they're sold at the dealership, that everybody signs a power of attorney to allow that car to be put over into the state ownership. Right. And, mm. and It's one of the ways that, that they will trick people into signing that power of attorney is they will offer to pay for the tag plates for your car when you first get it. And so they'll say, sign here, give us power of attorney so we can go down here and get the plates for your car. Well, when you're doing that, that's one of the ways. When you sign that power of attorney, that allows that dealership to give the ownership of that brand new car over to the state. So they control it. Sure. So that is why, in all these places, you have to have emissions checked. You have to have insurance. You have to have this and that because the state's requiring you. Because you don't own your own car, you're a driver of that car. And Ralph yeah. Winterow, it found in all the states. Every state has has a code, and it's it, it it starts at code nine. Every one of them will say like code nine, blah 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 and it'll say on there that the police can't write tickets except to drivers, which is cars that are owned by somebody else. So when they're referring to everybody as a driver, they're labeling you as not an owner. You're working for somebody else, so to speak, and making profit and in commerce, but you don't own the car or truck. So when the police write a ticket, they can write it for everybody, because technically you
2: don't own the car right, right well, that's an interesting question that you know my my mind leads to is you know when you finally take your you know MCO and register it under your private trust, if you or another member of your association is traveling in that uh, motor vehicle that if they have a problem with law enforcement and they try to um, you know, literally have that car impounded, then they're literally having uh, a piece of your private property impounded, and that's a whole different uh, set of uh, repercussions that occur. They can impound your commercial employee vehicle with with almost zero perca- – we've seen it, obviously, with zero repercussions. But once you're, you're uh, traveling uh, conveyance – is registered under your private trust then you actually have a legal uh, remedy to to pursue when and if your property gets confiscated and so that's kind of where I was leading to that question for Brian because I don't think people just jump off the diving board and try to put their house under a private trust i think they they dabble in other pieces of property they just put it under there get the paperwork all squared away you know see how they feel about the process is it a real remedy are they challenged anywhere on it can they actually fight off a rebuttal on it you know, and if and if the answer is is all squeaky clean, then you would go start going to your larger items like your car and your your actual bank accounts and things like that. And so, my next question would be like with Brian, he mentioned that he went out and got a non-interest-bearing bank account. My question with those is, can you request to have uh, additional cards or checkbooks made out? for other individuals within your association uh, by using that same bank account. Or if you would get cards made out to the actual association and then people would use them like a company card, you know, because that really becomes your uh, tight funnel point, your constriction point is how you get the funds That are being shared amongst everyone within the private membership association to be fluidly used well there's solutions to be had within blockchain and crypto but that requires again a technical ability to apply that well if you're not someone who's gonna go down that Avenue you would just go to your bank and get an account that either would allow other members of your association to have their own named cards and checkbooks or those cards that they have MasterCard or Visa on them would actually have just your private association listed on them. And then when they go to a store, they could you know, have some other piece of identification that someone could check to verify that you actually are in true possession of the right card um so i guess my brain just keeps on going down the avenues it's like what all can you put underneath your private trust so that when someone passes away or something needs to be sold or something becomes endangered to being confiscated by the commercial system you know what what process of remedy can you fall back on and you know the more people that jump into your association obviously the more you know clout and power you have behind that so i just wonder if these things exist in a i guess a secular fashion because i know we know they exist in a religious fashion people are you know kind of getting into their own little group dynamics within their churches and their religious organizations but what about the secular people you know like i i just wonder how that's happening and they're obviously slower organized but is that happening Uh,
0: I'd say it it operates both ways. You're talking about vehicles and stuff like that. And um, what really has occurred is that whether it's the car or the home or property, everything is being held under split title. It's being held under equitable title and legal title. Um, And as far as like the dealerships go, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily them going and, getting the plates for you that and giving power of attorney over although I, I heard there's a clause in there for that that does it but I know that the dealerships for selling new cars part of their license in order to sell new cars in the state. Under the Secretary of State there is an agreement that the MCO uh, manufacturer certificate of origin or the MSO the manufacturer statement of origin is supposed to go, to the state once they receive the vehicle um, and I've seen a photo from somebody at a dealership that worked there and they showed a picture of a table that was full of MCOs it was full of that equitable title and the equitable title holder in equity they're the ones that receive the profit they receive the money and that's received through registration the tags insurance Tickets, uh, inspections, on and on. You name it. Yeah, um, I've got a playlist on YouTube actually. Um, the first one on the, it's called um, "Oh, Deciphering the um, Vehicle Code." And the, the very first video on there, the, the girl explains how she did it. She shows the photos, lays it all out. Uh, which is actually a second way of getting your MCO or MSO, and that is through a title search. And I think the same thing then would also apply to property like land or real estate. And in the title search that's done, what is received back in that package also includes uh, the MSO or the MCO. Uh, However, with property, what we're really looking at, we're going back to um, deeds and patents, because that is what everything's been operating under since the inception of USA, was deeds and patents from the king, which was really the right of use, or uh, as Boris says, usufruct. If anybody wants to research the word usufruct, that's what that falls under. So yeah, there's there's ways of doing that out there, um, and like with the vehicles, the people are having plenty of success. That's not really that much of a problem. More difficult with homes or real estate, um, and I and I think there's a reason for that. And to me, it just makes sense that you should not be allowed to have total ownership of your land. That's my personal belief. Um, and I think anybody that goes back and reads the Law of Nations would comprehend that. That book isn't something new. That, was, that book was done in 1750. Where it was a compilation of codes and statutes that go back to even creation of states around Egypt and in the Middle East. It's old information. It's not new. Yeah, stuff. Brian.
1: If, if you own your land, there's never, there's not a higher asset to own if you owned your land because nobody could control you in a way. Then that's your
0: safety. Okay. Let me explain. Let me explain the ownership of land to you. Um, say you are a wealthy farmer in Iowa, and every year you're getting bumper crops of corn. And there's other farmers around you, eh, they're getting their 70s or 80s, they, and their kids don't care about farming so much. So you're taking your profits, and you, you start buying up their land. Eventually, you own two-thirds of the state of Iowa's farming land, okay? And you have total 100% ownership to it. Some people say that that's a title. But technically, no. A low deal doesn't even give you total ownership. But just say hypothetically, you have total ownership. You don't have to pay taxes on it or anything like that. And you get this little sweetheart deal from somebody that will pay you triple the value for your land. And you're thinking, gosh, I'll jump on that. I'll go and retire, move to the Bahamas. Um, However, this entity that wants to purchase that from you, is doing it through a third party. And this entity is actually Vladimir Putin from Russia. And so, if you have total ownership of your land, could do whatever and dispose of it, and dispose is a serious word, you could dispose of it or mortgage it in any way you wanted, that would mean that you could dispose of it or mortgage it to uh, the premier of Russia. Now all of a sudden, the premier of Russia owns two-thirds of the state of Iowa. Now we're getting down a pretty slippery slope, aren't we? So there is a reason why all ownership is vested in this state. It's actually for the protection of the people. It is a correct thing. The only problem is is that with the state's vested ownership of the property, is that they want to turn around and tax the shit out of people and regulate the shit out of people. That's where the problem comes in at.
1: Yeah, but Putin is still buying that land through a third party. He's just not getting full control over it. But he still owns it, you know, the control and the
0: ownership of it. <clears throat> Well, he's doing it through a third party. That means he's got control of a third party, which means he has control over the land. But you see yeah. the direction I'm heading in. I do.
2: Brian, there's an interesting uh, titles of nobility original 13th amendment uh, little factoid in there about what you just said, which is you know more or less you know accurate. And they tried to uh, circumvent that. They literally saw that as a major problem, where the Catholic Church was snatching up. Land trusts in Maryland and and some of the other colonies and literally uh, slaving Africans on their on their actual land. And so they started to question whether you can have a title of nobility or a foreign emolument. And still own the land, and so they literally tried to make it illegal to be a holder of office of trust or of proprietary trust, and that was the real clincher of how you know maybe 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 how the the White House got burned down in the War of eighteen twelve is because we we literally almost made it so that these foreign Lawyer, barrister types were not able to hold an office of trust to be that third party entity.
0: Well, you know that that's one of the things that a lot of the people in the Patriot movement want to bring up is the elimination of the uh, 13th Amendment. But if you go in and read the Constitution that exists today, you um, know, even just read the section on money, there is a mention in there about titles of nobility. It wasn't totally eliminated. And what's really been done, well, there's two things that's been done. One, they use the uh, first and 14th Amendment, which goes back to what I was talking about private associations. They use those to create all these offices under private associations to run everything. Carol Quigley even said that this is the way it was going to be done in the future. And he was correct. And so... That's one avenue that that they went in with it. The other avenue they went in with it is through the education system. And not just, you know, elementary schools or high schools or anything like that, but at the college level. Because if you go and look at these colleges that a lot of these senators, uh, heads of businesses, these CEOs where they've gone to school at, these Ivy League colleges and others, they're all Jesuit colleges. And if you research what their plan was and what they really want to do, it was to infiltrate the community. Well, once these people graduate, and I'll tell you what, you look at um, the amount of possible priests graduating from those colleges It's over 30000 a year. Well, there's not that many new Catholic churches and Catholic institutions being implemented every year or priests being replaced. So what are they doing? These guys are being told, you go into the communities, uh, you get on the school board, uh, you get on the county commissioner's table, um, you join all the organizations, uh, you become... A part of the board for the Baptist church that you go to. And that's what they've done. They've slowly infiltrated and put in their philosophies into society. And people don't realize that it's moved right into that. And they don't even know that that's where everybody is sitting at today. And th- that, once again, goes back to the title of tonight's call. You know, who are you? You don't know who they are. Because the whole system around them looks like one thing, but it's really something else.
1: That's true. What you just said about training those priests, and then they come into the neighborhood, and if they need to, they pretend like they're Baptist, okay, or Methodist, yeah. whatever, don't they? They, they get they, they
0: get on the chamber of commerce.
1: Yep, they put on the mask is what they do, and and. Fit whatever category they need to fit in, don't they, Brian? They've been trained to do that. Let me
0: me tell you something. Let let me tell you something that most people don't know. Um, There is one woman that I've read a lot of her info, and she's really good. Uh, She used to be um, at UC Berkeley, California. All right. And uh, they ended up kicking her out of there because. She was originally a, a nuclear physicist, but she started getting into the area of researching where people came from, the origins of people. Okay. That's a very important thing. Stop and think about 23andMe and all these organizations, Ancestry.com, want your DNA and you're even paying to give it to them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a big deal. Well, anyway, she was looking into a lot of this stuff and there's more that lays behind it than people even realize way more Uh, because the infiltration is extremely serious. I was listening. uh, I'll have like the radio on in the background, normally like Fox radio on in the background while I'm doing stuff. And I'm not really listening to it, but sometimes certain little Bits of words pop up and draw my attention. And Rush Limbaugh was on one day. This is about three years ago. And he said, "Well, he said to tell you the truth, I don't know the topic he was talking about. It's not important. But he said to tell you the truth, as a change agent, I think that da 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 should happen." And all I heard was him say, "As a change change agent," and I was like, "Oh my God!" And it went back this woman from uc berkeley because they uh tried to get her to become a change agent and so she researched it and in researching it she found that they normally have like one big conference every year the one she went to was in uh new york upstate new york where a few thousand people show up but it's people they recruit from different communities all over the U S and it's not lower level people necessarily. It's people that are popular people that those communities listen to and they instill their communistic uh, manifesto. If you want to say through these people, they call change agents. And so when I heard Rush Limbaugh claim that he was a change agent, I was like, Oh, That makes total sense now who that guy is. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That means Alex Jones is is a change agent. He probably is
0: too. It wouldn't surprise me. I don't think anybody gets in a position of popularity or a position where they can sway the public if they're not in bed with the real powers that be. I, I, I a great really example think of
2: that is a guy who started out small and made his way up Mr. Glenn Beck. He he was just a small-time radio guy and then once he started getting traction his whole message started to get real real weird, you know, and then he they really went super gentrified and commercial. So, uh, whether you think uh, Infowars and that whole thing is change agent, there's lots and lots of other examples.
0: Yeah, I, I went uh, actually here in Florida, and I, I saw Glenn back in person at a small church here and listened to him for about two or three hours, and I, I thought it was just kind of interesting, you know, and of course, it was a Seventh-day Adventist church, a Mormon church, which we know, we go back to the Masons and stuff there, or whatever, and it, to me, you look at the Jesuits, they were kicked out of every freaking country everywhere. So the only thing they could do is swindle their, their way back in through the back door as being part of some of these other organizations. You know what I mean?
2: Well, it's interesting you say that because it wasn't all that long ago that you could not be a Jesuit nor a Catholic uh, if you were trying to get in to be a Freemason. a whole a whole aspect of Freemasonry was to be the antithesis to that whole conundrum of Jesuitism and this this hidden hand conundrum. Um, there's actually uh, a few, catchisms that went around the United States in the late 1800s and early 1900s where they would literally call the Freemasons and the Shriners and stuff like that the the widow's guardian because the Jesuits and the the Catholic Church were so parasitic on uh, women who would outlive their husbands and who would be sitting on a bunch of money and a house or property of sorts and they would literally come in and get them to sign over their, their assets as penance to the church. And so the Freemasons would uh, have organizations that women, wives, widows who were had husbands who were not Freemasons could still come and get what we would probably deem between us and this call as just simple legal uh, consultation saying, what are your actual rights and what should you do and not do? because you're going to get defrauded of your assets. So I just thought I'd bring that up, because there was a lot of known fraud of widows who belonged to the church, and it was literally the Catholic Church and the Jesuits who were behind that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And a very popular phrase uh, within the community is uh, son of the widow. And you know, somebody just mentioned in chat that you know Trump and his kids all went to Jesuit colleges. Yeah, Trump went to Fordham. Fordham is a Jesuit college. Um, You look at, um, what's his name, Gordo or whatever, that was trying to become president of Venezuela. Um, Juan. Juan went to George Washington University, another Jesuit university. He was totally trained by the U.S. And I've actually got an article on that because I went around the, the world and I started looking up. These different leaders of people, different nations, even people in Iran, even people in China and found they had all gone to a Jesuit college in the U.S. The U.S. was training these people and spreading them around the world.
2: And that's how colonialism was spread into Africa in the same way. They would take these people who were of blood lineage and they would bring them back to Europe and put them through a, a college or a university that was connected to the church in some way. And then they would send them back to the country and, you know, kind of... W- Keep, keep their throne or keep their their empire in succession, but they were a complete mole and, and hidden hand for the colonial powers. And the same thing happened here in the United States with regards to the Industrial Revolution. When Thomas Jefferson decided that he was going to ax all the taxes on everything that had kind of been domestically uh, created thus far, he incidentally, created a domestic industrial base. And, and that you know, blew up the whole northeastern uh, urban landscape because women and children started to migrate their way into the factories that started sprouting up. And the agrarian society that Madison and Payne and Jefferson all, you know, lauded as the, the most you know, benevolent way to live, was you know quickly 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 eroded by the northeastern industrial proprietary system where they would bring over weaving technologies from the UK and and literally run them here stateside when normally we would just grow the cotton send it to England and let them toil in the factories so it kind of was an incidental byproduct of axing all of the local taxes and in throwing the whole shipping system into a major disarray And here we are today, you know, kind of with the vestiges of the Industrial Revolution where, you know, we're expected to work and the amount of labor we put in, of course, creates less and less remuneration for us. And we think that it's, we think it's the politicians, but they're just the easy target. We know that it's the bankers. We know it's the money changers. And who are the money changers? The money changers are the Templars. Who are the Templars? The Templars are the Jesuits. And here we are again in the circular pattern.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and if you look through patterns in history and look at different things that have gone on, let say, for instance, uh, Afghanistan, uh, there's um, a few articles out there called Afghanistan, the Graveyard of Nations. I mean, that's such a great example of it. And w- all of this is, it is a new form of colonialism because evil doesn't change its name. I mean, evil doesn't go away. It just changes its name. You know what I mean? It it comes back as something else. So it's not recognized right away, at least not by the current generation. Normally it takes a couple generations to start recognizing it. And I think that's what we're doing right now. We are recognizing that, yeah, this is the same thing, just circling back. And you know what? And so guess what? It's a totally different system running things and what people really think is running things. Uh, That's why so many of the patriots have been stuck on dumping this Constitution all the time when it's a document that doesn't even belong to the common man. It belongs to a company. You know? And no wonder people don't know who they are. No wonder they have an identity crisis. Because what they really are, they are a captured operation. The U.S. has been a captured operation. And It's given people this feeling of power or authority. Oh, we let you vote and stuff like that. Uh, People think, oh, yeah, we've got power. You you know, we just need to vote harder. Well, you know, guess what? Um, North Korea, they've got a constitution. They vote. China's got a constitution. They vote. Uh, What's so special about that? Nothing. Those things are just put in place as an illusion to give the people some feeling of control because when people start realizing they don't have any control, that's when problems occur. And I think that hopefully the USA is just around the corner from that occurring. People are starting to wake up and realize, you know what? Everything presented to us has been a fraud. There's no control here. They're going to do whatever the hell they want. No matter who we vote for, we are voting for somebody out of their selection, we may think we elect, but we don't select. And they say, "Hey, here's three people that belong to us. You can choose out of these three people." <laughs> what good does that do you? Nothing.
2: That's a great point, Brian. And there's something else that's maybe worth bringing up here uh, for the people who are awake to what has uh, been put into office here. You know, talking about a jesuit president at the same time as the first jesuit pope in, in our in our current epoch and um a lot of people don't realize that the catholic church's uh, military arm is called the priori de scion and it's spelt with a s c i o n And so that establishment is very, very old. Uh, You were talking about how some of the uh, frameworks, the framing for the law of nations goes back to the Egyptian and Phoenician times. And that's exactly where a lot of this militant uh, espionage type stuff stems from. And in the Babylonian times with the priest classes, and they've literally just preserved what is functional to them. And uh, a lot of people are kind of confused by how Trump is uh, a supporter of the you know Zionist state of Israel. Well, if you understand what Jesuitism is and how old it is, you realize what it has actually uh, been, involved in in creating for binaries or Hegelian dialectics. And religions themselves are literally Hegelian dialectics. And so uh, the support of the new state of Israel uh, from a very, very old organization should not be a surprise at all. In fact, you know, the the whole... Balfour Declaration, you know, had to be approved by the current uh, priori uh, de scion, that, that black black pope, the, the pope that reigns underneath the actual pope, that had to be cleared, that Balfour Declaration had to be cleared by them. And so when you see the succession of ownership and how that whole progression occurred, it very, very much was uh, in the the whole brain trust of the Vatican itself and and the Vatican city trust that that exists globally. Um, Brian, you've said it many, many times that the, the Roman empire did not fall. It literally transmogrified itself so that, you know, essentially evil could not be recognized when it surfaced again, because we, we simply are, are looking for something that is, Um, not there. And then the, the thing, the entity that is affecting us cannot be seen because we're simply looking for the wrong things. And as you said just now, a few moments ago, I think we're going through that right now. There are people waking up and seeing the right things and You know, at first their words are obtuse and nobody can kind of really understand what they're saying and they sound like a a theorist or a, a quack job. And then slowly and slowly they refine their message and what they actually say gets checked out and you do your actual fact checking and you find out that, holy cow, a lot of these dots actually do connect up. And one of the things that you can connect up with the whole Jesuit, POTUS Jesuit president is that it's very likely that Trump was never wanted for the full four years or the full eight years. The fact that he's made it this long might be quite surprising to his puppeteers. The real goal may actually be to have Pence be right behind him because he is a die in the wool Jesuit. You look at all of his pedigrees and you see that he is the type of smooth talking be able to go into just about any room and and be able to adapt and kind of transmogrify himself. So we'll see how it plays out, of course, but we got kind of a possibility of a snake in the grass right now. And you know, whether the impeachment goes through in the Senate or something else happens to remove Trump from the actual office, it may have been planned that Pence is the, the, the ultimate Jesuit POTUS anyways, so
0: well, well, Pence could also, you know, follow him after two, two terms, you know what I mean? But, you know, looking at that, and, you know, sure, you've got, you know, the Jesuit president, you got the president pope, it, it's like all of their ducks are starting to fall into place. All their things are starting to line up for them and what the ultimate goal is. And you go to uh, four months ago, um... Mike Pompeo stood in Israel right next to Benjamin Netanyahu, and he said that the United States of America is the new Rome, and the United States, talking about D.C., is the new Jerusalem. And guess what? Benjamin Netanyahu didn't even freaking wince. So he didn't even blink. And I'm thinking, where are the American people? Aren't they listening to what's being said right here? don't they get it and i hear so many of the patriots talking about all of these things that trump has done these executive orders and stuff like that you know you can put these executive orders out they're nothing but a piece of paper if you don't put the things in place that are required to carry out those executive orders they don't mean anything they're just words You've got to put the structure in place to carry out that executive order. If Trump doesn't do that, it's just a gesture. That's all it is.
2: That's a great point, Brian. It might have been the same visit where Pompeo said in front of the world uh, that anti-Zionism is the same as anti-Semitism and forever making the secretary of state position be a mockery of our, our whole system, like literally just debased everybody right there.
0: Yeah, I think it was probably the same speech. Well, anyway, we've been on for well over an hour now. Um, gosh, some good info has come out from everybody this evening. Totally appreciate it. Um, if anybody had something extra they want to bring up in closing, uh, feel free to do so. I, I normally schedule these. I allot three hours for the podcast. Uh, normally just because in case there's a problem with connecting and that kind of stuff. Um, but I normally try and keep it much less than that is if people look and they see like a a two and a half hour call, they normally ignore it. But if they see one that's an hour, an hour and a half, they they might pay attention. So anyway, if anybody has something else they wanna bring up, feel free to do so. Um, Otherwise, I think we've got a lot to think about.
2: Thank you a lot, Brian. I was just gonna mention, um, or maybe just a suggestion if at all possible, in an upcoming episode uh, to get that gentleman on as a guest. I think his name is pronounced Kelby or Kelsey or Kelby. It's the gentleman who is involved in getting the unique passports for people. I'd really yeah. love to to learn a little bit more about his situation in this process.
0: Yeah, I know you're talking about. I, I communicate with him pretty regularly, and that can be done. Um, here in a couple weeks, we have.